Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 10. Psalm 10. This psalm really is the second strophe of Psalm 9. In fact, in many of the Hebrew Bibles, the Hebrew versions and some of the Syriac and Vulgate versions of the Old Testament, uh, the Psalm 9, Psalm 9 is paired with Psalm 10 as one psalm. And that's why uh, you will not find the numbering of the 150 psalms exactly the same in, di- in different versions because Psalm 9 is actually the first stanza of the psalm and Psalm 10 is the second stanza of the psalm and they kind of go together. In Psalm 9, there is a tremendous outpouring of thanksgiving and in Psalm 10, specific questions are raised. Now, Luther believed that the cruel man of Psalm 10, and there are two characters in Psalm 10, the cruel or the ungodly, and the poor or the godly. And those two characters are pitted, so to speak, against each other, and questions are raised that I'm going to talk about in just a moment. We do not know who wrote this Psalm 10 and Psalm 9 because there is no superscription. Uh, A superscription is the title ahead of the first verse that tells you who wrote it and why or on what occasion it was written. Well, we don't have such a thing. It appears Davidic in nature. In other words, the internal structure of the Psalms looks like what David would have written, but we're not absolutely sure. And the reason we're not sure is because there just doesn't seem to be any way to date this particular psalm. Regardless of who wrote the psalm, the question that is raised in the psalm is eternal in its application. There is a fundamental life question that is asked and answered in what C.S. Lewis called the problem of pain. I don't know how many of you have ever read that book, The Problem of Pain, but uh, it is written by one of the great minds of uh, a generation or so ago. And I read The Problem of Pain and found it to be very empty. And I think it was empty for reason. C.S. Lewis, of course, one of the most brilliant scholars of our time, uh, literally did what the psalmist does here in Psalm 10. He raises the question, but then leaves the answer unanswered. Uh, The problem of pain is one that when you write the book on it and you discover the answers to the question of why God hides from us, then you will become a best-selling author. You will have answered the question that scholars and theologians and church fathers have been asking and attempting to answer for generations and have yet to do so. Why does God hide his face from us? The psalmist is 
bent with pain. There is something going on. His lights have gone out. A darkness has set in. He is like the classic cartoon character, Pigpen, who runs around in life with this dirt cloud hanging over him. No matter where he goes, he feels the dirt cloud hanging over his head. There is a darkness in Psalm 10 that gives way to a brightness, but he doesn't tell us how he gets there. The problem of pain remains. The question of why God allows such sorrow, more specifically, where is God when this sorrow occurs? Today, as I speak to you, there are over 250 million children, children, seven, eight, nine, ten year old children, 250 million, and those are the conservative estimates, children who are being sexually exploited and even sold into sexual slavery where depraved and wicked minds from all over the world will travel thousands and thousands of miles and pay thousands and thousands of dollars to do unspeakable things to these little children. And you have to raise the question, if you're at all a reasonable person, God, why? You are the one who said and warned that it would be preferable to die that death would be better for you rather than to offend one of these little ones. You obviously, Lord, hold a very special place in your heart for the innocence of these little ones. So, Lord, why? Why would you permit you who are a loving, you who are an awesome and powerful God, why would you permit 200 and 50 million children to be abused in unspeakable ways. Where are you, God? Have you ever had unsaved people ask you that question? When you bear your testimony to them and speak of the love of God, inevitably they will raise the question back to you is then, well, why does God permit all this suffering? You have this loving God that you speak of who loved you so much that he gave his life to die for you on the cross and you speak of how he has changed your life. But where is that God when a little child develops a brain tumor? Where is that God when that little child's mother travels four hours to speak to your pastor's wife as to why her child died? Eight years old. Why, Lord, do you permit such suffering and brokenness? We could almost tolerate it if it were the ungodly who were being tortured or persecuted. But, Lord, where are you when this injustice is taking place in the lives of little children? Where are you, Lord, when cancer hits? Where are you, Lord? When wars occur, why is it that you who are proclaimed by your church to be a loving and awesome and sovereign God 
who knows the hairs of our head and has numbered them, you who does not permit a sparrow to fall from the sky, you who seem to know all things and you who declare your omnipotence to your church who declares it to the world, why, Lord, where are you when these injustices occur? Have you ever had people raise that question to you? You know, Luther believed that the cruel man of Psalm 10 is the Antichrist. He believes that Satan is the cruel man and that Jesus is the godly person spoken of, the poor person spoken of, and that this is a cosmic psalm that represents the struggle of Christ against Antichrist. Some scholars believe that it is a picture of satanic oppression against the church. Regardless of what your position is on the contents of the psalm and how you are able to view the characters of the psalm, one central theme is clear in the psalm. The psalmist begins by raising a question that is eternal in nature. Verse one, why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Here is the complaint. Where are you, God, when life is unfair? And where are you, God, when I am unjustly hurt? I've been talking to you about eternal or covenantal principles, if you will, concepts that I hope when I die and my children die, that their children and their children's children will have learned these covenant principles. And I've been going through the Psalms. And remember, when we talk about the Psalms, we're talking about people who held those very same life experiences I'm speaking of right now. They've gone through what you're going through. They've experienced the pain that you are experiencing. They've experienced the injustice, perhaps, that you have experienced. Many of them were martyred. Many of them never recovered. Yet the Psalms speak of the worship of their hearts, the expression of joy that comes from knowing that God intimately. And that's why we have the book of Psalms. It is our worship manual. Some were applied to individual people. Some were to be used in a corporate setting. Some in a national setting. But the book of Psalms speaks the language of worship. It is the expression or the cry, if you will, of the soul. And so I've laid out some of these principles for you, like in Psalm 1. I talked about I wanting, my, wanting my grandchildren and my children to learn that they cannot play chess with the devil. Uh, I went to my favorite Psalm, Psalm 34, where I said I want my children and my grandchildren to know how to regain their spiritual compass when they lose it. And all of us at one time or another lose it. I spoke to you of Psalm 84, a majestic psalm where I want my children and my grandchildren to learn how to fix their hearts as the psalmist did on pilgrimage. We talked about living or walking through the dangerous valley of Baca, the valley of tears and suffering while you're on that pilgrimage. 
Then we looked at Psalm 116, where I want my children and my grandchildren to learn how to have contented and grateful spirits that is rooted in their salvation that never presumes upon the grace of God. Presumptuous living, presumptuous expectations of God's grace is sinful. Or Psalm 2, the great introductory psalm along with Psalm 1 that shapes the character of the book of Psalms where I want my children and my grandchildren to see the story of Jesus and his wonderful plan of redemption on every single page of this book so that they might view all contemporary events that are going on around them in the context of, as the psalmist in Psalm 2 calls it, a God who laughs. Or we looked at Psalm 24, the part of the great trilogy of Psalms 22, 23, and 24 that are to be read together. The psalm that speaks of the king of glory. I want my children and my grandchildren as we learned in that psalm, to remember their spiritual traditions so that when they are faced with secular unbelief, and they will, those memories, those traditions will instigate in them even greater dreams for their own identity in Jesus Christ. Or as we quietly looked, and I believe we could hear a pin drop in the sanctuary when we talked about Psalm 119, specifically verses 9 through 16, where we talked about the sin of moral failure, the sin of adultery. I want my children and my grandchildren to know how to handle moral temptation by the proper use of scripture and to realize the dire consequences of moral failure. Well, today I want to look at Psalm 10. Let me lay out for you what I believe is the legacy or covenant principle. I want my children, as I read Psalm 10, this is the message that I get. I want my children and I want my grandchildren to learn that life is not always fair and that there will be along the way people who mean them great harm. But our God, who although at times seems to be very distant, is keeping score And he will weigh all matters, all matters in the balance. And so the psalmist raises the question, where are you, God, when life is not fair? Where are you when things are unjust? Now, parenthetically, let me say this. And this is not really the main point of the sermon, but on occasion you've heard me say this, so I want to put it in the proper context. If we were to ask God to give us what we would deserve, we would never be able to complain about the injustices of life. We think we deserve certain things, but if God were really to give us what we deserve, we would have no right to ask the question why. But God does not treat us according to what we deserve. He treated his son according to what we deserve. Our sins were laid on his son on the cross. It was the unjust dealings of Satan with the sin of mankind. It was our sins that were laid on his back on the cross when he did no wrong, when he lived that perfect life. 
He died in my place. There is nothing just about that from my perspective. But from God's perspective, that is the definition of justice. You see on the cross, God's love and God's mercy and God's justice marry. That is the one place where you see them meet. The love and the mercy of God in that he permits his son to be butchered in my place and to justly deal with my sins so that eternally I wouldn't have to. There is nothing fair about that. There is nothing just about that from my perspective. But that is God's definition of justice, to rightly and righteously deal with my sins. So if God were to give us what we deserve, we would have to pay the price on the cross. That is what the definition of hell is. We would spend the equivalent of an eternity in hell in order to atone for our sins, only never to be able to do so because we ourselves are sinful people. So when we raise the complaint, why, Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We are not raising a blasphemous question. You see, the psalmist is not doing so. He's not raising this question in order to blaspheme God. He's not asking God or asking God to explain his injustice. That's not the question being raised here. The psalmist literally wants to know the answer to this question. Lord, as I am going through this trial, as I am experiencing this pain, this heartache, this darkness, this cloud that hangs over me, as I am going through this and there is injustice being done to me or against me, Lord, I want to know the answer to this question. What is your role in all of that? Not in a blasphemous way. But Lord, where is your hand in this? That's one of the most godly things, by the way, you can do when you're walking through trial is to look, to search for, to intensely look for the hand of God because it's there, even though his face may be hidden. You know, it is a grievous thing when God's people feel the face of God turned away from them. In fact, that's the very definition of revival, God turning his face back. It's like the uh, prophet said, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh God, this is the prayer of the heart, that you would tear apart the heavens and come down. Why? Because there's a darkness here. You are hiding from me. I can't see your face. And so it grieves us when God hides his face especially when he hides his face in times of trouble. It ought to grieve us. But where is your hand, Lord? Where is your hand in all of this? There is a sense in which a darkness sets in that seems to indicate to us that God doesn't care. On the one hand, you'll have the atheist on the extreme side. The atheist who will say, well, this is what life is all about. There is no God. There are no moral absolutes. Your pain is relative. All mankind has pain, suffering. Get over it. Why would you bring God into this equation? There is no God. On the other hand, you would have the religionist or the deist, as we call him. The deist is the person who says, well, now, God, 
We know you wound up the clock of the universe. You created man, put him down there, let him run its course, and you're doing that right now. You've kind of wound up the clock and walked away. And when you've decided that we've had enough, then you'll come back, but you're certainly not imminent. You're certainly not involved in the affairs of my life. You simply aren't looking. You're just letting us eat ourselves and destroy ourselves, but there's certainly no imminence in you. There is no sense in which you are present in my life because you are a detached God. You see, those are the two extremes. On the one hand, the atheist who says there is no God. On the other hand, the deist who says God doesn't care, that he's detached. Both extremes are equally sinful. There is a sense in which we fail to understand the power and the majesty of God. Now, let me make something clear. As we go through Psalm 10 over the next few weeks, as we travel through this Psalm, and I would highly encourage you to read ahead of me, make sure you get a handle on what this Psalm is actually teaching so that when you hear the word preached to you, it'll make more sense. But let me make one thing very clear. The question is, why God do you hide? And I'm not going to answer that question for you. And neither does Psalm 10. In fact, you will not find anything in Scripture anywhere that answers that question. Now, you will find some inklings of an answer. For example, you will find that, that God allows certain things and, yes, even causes certain things to happen in our lives to bring us into a greater conformity to the image of his Son. In fact, that we can say categorically is the purpose of all suffering, to make us more like Christ, to experience the same things that Christ experienced. That's why he tells us to pick up your what? To pick up your what? Your gold chain, your silver diamonds and golden earrings, the, all the jewelry that you use to show a cross in your life. You know, it's amazing to me, we see an athlete with a cross around his neck. Oh, he must be a Christian. No, he not. no he's not necessarily. He just bought a gold, gold cross. That's all he, because it looks good. When, when the first century church spoke of a cross, they were afraid to even use the word. It was not something that they proudly put around their necks. And by the way, this is not a sermon about wearing a gold cross. You want to wear a gold cross, wear a gold cross. But please understand something. In the first century, the word cross was anathema. They didn't want to use that word because it was an ugly thing. It was a horrible, painful, ridiculous thing. It was a curse on a man to be hanged from a tree. And Peter walks along and he says, you know what, Christians? Here is the command. Pick up your cross. Ugly word. Pick up your cross every single day and follow after Christ. Walk in his steps. His steps lead to the cross. You remember the story of the mother of the sons of Boagenes? James and John, the sons of thunder. Early on in the ministry of Jesus, the mother saw power in this man. And he, she knew a kingdom was coming, but she didn't know what it was going to look like. But she knew as a mother who was interested in the welfare of her children... Just like you parents argue with coaches on your soccer team and basketball teams and all that other stuff, you want to see your children achieve the best, right? This woman walks up to Jesus one day. 
she says, Lord, I have one request for you. When you come into your kingdom, I want my two boys to be on your right hand and your left hand. I see you have 12 disciples. Now, this is not in scripture, it's implied. I see you have 12. Now, there have to be two that are your favorites. One on the right hand and one on the left hand. What was Jesus' response to this woman? He said, woman, you don't have a clue as to what you're asking. I wonder what this lady thought when she looked up on Mount Calvary and saw Jesus hanging there on the cross and on his right hand and his left hand were two other men being crucified. I wonder if she would have said to him at that point, I want James on your right hand and I want John on your left hand. I wonder if her story changed when she saw the price tag on being part of the life of Christ. Part of the cross means we will suffer. When the psalmist says in verse one, why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? The language in the Hebrew and specifically in the Vulgate and in the Septuagint, the Greek words that are used, the Latin words and the Hebrew words that are used are the very same words that Jesus used when he was on the cross. This is what caused some of the early church leaders to say this is a Christological psalm. It's speaking of Christ on the cross and the evil one is Satan oppressing him. And that could very well be. But the language is exactly what Jesus said when he was hanging there on the cross. My God, my God, why are you hiding from me? Because you see at that point, that is precisely what God was doing. He turned his back on his only begotten son, and the lights went out. The darkness set in, and the screams of the cross were very clear. Why? Why? As the psalmist said, why, O oh Lord, are you standing so far off? You see, it's a fair question. It's a question I've raised. I want to tell you, there is a darkness that sets in when God hides his face. Let me tell you something. I have felt that darkness, and I know many of you have. It is not something you see. It's something you feel. You cry out to God, and he doesn't seem to be listening. Lord, I just need to hear a word, just one word. I need to know you're listening and there's silence. I need to know you care, and there's silence. I need to see your face, and he's hidden. I need to feel your power, but it's not there. We've all gone through that. We've all experienced. You feel the darkness. Even in the middle of light, you feel the darkness. This is what the psalmist is talking about. Lord, it's dark in here. This pain is incredible. He's going to go on and talk about how unjustly he's been treated. Now, I want you to tuck that aside for a moment. 
because I want to come back and talk about another dimension to verse 1 that is not recorded for us in the psalm, but it's implied. As Psalm 10 unfolds, we have this picture. The question is being raised. The darkness is obviously there. And the soul, the cry of the soul is very clear. Lord, where are you? Where are you? Now, the rest of the psalm talks about the war and the, and the battle of Satan against the soul of that person in the darkness. Because you see, when we're down, he wants to keep us there. When we begin to rise up, he doesn't want us to hear the voice of God. But with each successive generation where we are continually bombarded with these kinds of questions and doubts by the enemy, the enemy, the secularist, the, the, the person in our culture who, who represents this godless, anti-Christian society that boasts itself of how unfair our God is. They're usually the ones who vomit their venom up into our faces when we see pain and war and heartache around us. Where is your God now? They say. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What were the people underneath the cross saying? What were the people who were passing by saying? The same things that you and I hear. Where is your God now? You claim you have faith in God. Well, if you have faith in God, come down from that cross. You saved others, but you can't save yourself. Where is your God now? Oh, we've become more cultured in how we say that. But the message is still the same. You and I live in the context of a secular society. And in the context of that secular society, we hear the artists and the performers and the stars. We watch them as they shape the character of our kids. Our kids who can quote more verses from songs that are obnoxious and antithetical to anything decent can't even quote one verse of scripture. I read an article just, in fact, this morning, I read an article of why in the Southern Baptist Convention, over the last 30 years, the Southern Baptist churches are experiencing a marked decline in attendance. For 30 years, it's been going on. Now, one side of the, uh, the debate went something like this. Well, the reason we're losing the old people, the baby boomers, because you see, there's, they have, they've identified two sides that they're losing. They're losing young people, and they're losing old people. And so they raised the question, they said, well, the reason we're losing the old people is because they feel slighted by the move of the church to include the young people. They've been pushed aside. They're not remembered anymore. Their traditions are pushed aside. Their music is pushed aside. Everything seems to be focused on enculturating the young people and reaching out to the young people, but now they're realizing that that enculturation is not working. They're also losing the young people. So on the one hand, they're losing the young people. On the other hand, they're losing the old people. The church, listen to me, 
the churched are becoming unchurched. The challenge of the article went something like this. Maybe it's time for the church to examine what's really happening. What's really going on? Why are we losing this battle on both ends of the generational spectrum? Why are we not losing or gaining our young people and why are we losing our old people? The one thing you could normally count on in the church was the stability of the old people. Now, when I say old people, I'm talking about me. I'm talking, because I readily admit I'm one of the oldest people in the church. Most of our church is younger. I see a few gray heads out there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a sense in which you've had to accommodate. You've had to move over. There's another sense in which if the church does not address the culture of the young, if it does not reach out and address the culture of the young, the future of the church is very bleak. So how do we strike the balance? How do we reach the church? Because that's really our problem right now. We're losing the church. You know what's happening in the church structures and church systems across this nation? There's a musical church system going on. You played musical chairs before? Well, musical Christians, that's what's going on. We're just rotating the Christians to the next biggest theatrical performance. We're just moving around. We're not gaining converts. We're just moving Christians around. Now, the question needs to be raised is why? I want to propose to you one reason why God's hiding his face, why we're not experiencing revival, because we don't deserve his face. We don't deserve his face. When Sharon and I were away, we had an opportunity to visit some churches. On the positive side, we went to a church that boasted of a traditional service and a contemporary service. That always bothers me. It always bothers me. We've never broadcast or tried to do that. We believe in a blended concept of worship. But there are churches that markedly distinguish between a contemporary service and a traditional service in order to appeal to certain generations. There's something covenantally wrong with that. Because in terms of the covenant theology we embrace, we are not to be age-segregated. We are to be age-inclusive. And so there needs to be a sense in which all bow before the cross and acknowledge the changes that are necessary, meaning at times we have to give up our rights. But we went to this church because it boasted of that, and it was a rather large church. I had seen their pastor on television. Even though he was a Baptist, I appreciated what he taught. Even though he was an Arminian, I felt he had a good, strong message. And so I said, let's go visit that church. It took us about an hour, hour and a half, I guess, to get there to the church, but we came. And the traditional service we missed, and it was letting out, and they looked like us. All the people, demographically, they looked like us. I didn't expect a whole lot when I went in. Sanctuary seats about 2,000 people. So 2,000 people were coming out, and 2,000 people were going in. But as we're sitting there in the sanctuary, we watched the 2,000 people going in. I said, Sharon, something's going on here. She said, yeah, I know. We looked around. There weren't any old people. When I say old people, I'm talking over 20. I'm talking a church service roughly in the neighborhood of 2,000 teenagers, kids. 
Now, it was truly contemporary. I didn't like any of the music. It was horrible. <laughs> it sounded horrible. It was, uh, they were musically tight, I'm sure, but it, just not my taste. But as I looked around, I thought to myself, I wonder what's going on here. Something's happening here. The kids, the girls were not indecently dressed. They were very modest. And I watched, we were sitting in the back, so I watched the wave of heads when the pastor would say, I want you to look at verse one. I wanted to see if they did this. I wanted to see if they even had their Bibles with them. And there was a wave of heads bowing and looking up. There wasn't one kid getting up and moving. Not one person that we saw got up and walked out of the church. Nobody had to go to the bathroom. 2,000 teenagers sitting there in this worship service under the teaching of the word of God. I got to tell you, I was impressed. Regardless of what you think about contemporary versus traditional, one thing became clear. They're obviously reaching their young people. And they're obviously reaching their old people. They're doing something right. So in raising the question to one of their people there, became very clear what it was. We believe in the finality of the word of God. And it is the word of God that is preached. We have determined that our young people need to sit under our pastor while he preaches the word to them. That has become a marked decision that we have made in this church. And our old people have fully supported and endorsed it. I got to tell you, they got something there. On the other hand, we visited another church. I will tell you this, it was a PCA church. And we had been there years ago. And um, I want to say up front that I know for a fact that what I'm about to criticize about that church internally is being handled. I know that the pastors of that church know this is a problem. And they're really trying to work on it. But a few years ago, we were in the church. Actually, Sharon spoke there at one point. And so we wanted to go back and see what was going on. So we went. And demographically, they looked again like us. But when we went into the sanctuary, I got to tell you, I was appalled. I was just appalled. I couldn't help but think to myself of the story of David when he brought the ark out of mothballs. Remember that story? I preached on that one time. For years, the ark was put in mothballs as the children of Israel were in rebellion against God. But under David's leadership, he brought the ark out of mothballs. And there was this big celebration, this big worship that was going on. The tenors were singing tenor. The sopranos were singing soprano. The bass, bass. There was a wonderful outpouring of God's spirit, it seemed, as the ark was now coming out of mothballs. And as the ark was traveling along, two men were standing beside it, tending it, and the ox that carried the ark stumbled. And one of the men, just in reflex, reached up and touched the ark. And God killed him. And the other guy touched the ark. And God killed him. You want to talk about cold water on a celebration. Two men now lying dead. And that celebration turned to mourning. David put the ark back into storage. And he realized what he had failed to do was read the directions. That there was a right way and a wrong way to handle the ark. There was a specific instruction that God had placed in the word on how we were to approach him. 
Worship cannot be so casual. We are entering into the presence of a holy God. We dare not approach him so casually. Children were running up and down the aisles, people on one side of the sanctuary yelling to people on the other side, even when the worship service started. People with their feet up on the chairs, people that were chit-chatting with one another, never even bothered. It took the, the worship leader 10 minutes to get control. Coffee brought in, donuts brought in, people sitting there drinking their coffee. They served it right outside the sanctuary. Bring your coffee in. Come with your jeans on. Come casually. Come with your shorts on. Wear whatever T-shirt you want to. This is not a sermon about how you dress. I was waiting for somebody to come around and say, hot dogs, popcorn. Anybody want hot dogs, popcorn? And I thought to myself, this is wrong. This is wrong. How dare we approach God so casually? I got to tell you, there's a place for fellowship. I never, ever want to take that away from you. But there is also a sense in which your children need to learn. This sanctuary is a holy place. It's not holy because of its walls. It's holy because of who we worship here. This is where he lands. I want to tell you something. I think the Catholics have this right. I think we have something to learn from the Catholics. I'll never forget when we were in St. Augustine, Florida, we went into one of the oldest churches in the country because St. Augustine is the oldest city in the country. We went into the Catholic sanctuary. All five senses were touched. Nobody would dare bring in a cup of coffee. There was a holy hush that was there. And say what you want to about Catholic theology. There is something they've got right. And that is God cannot be approached casually. I think we have something to learn from that. I think we approach God way too casually. If President Bush were here, standing right up front here, and you wanted to meet him, you wouldn't come up to him and say, hey, Georgie baby, how you doing? Hey, W, what's going on? Give me high five. You would call him, I would hope, Mr. President. I would hope you would respect whether you disagree or agree with his politics, his office. If the Queen of England came in here, there's a protocol. You can't just walk up to the Queen of England and say, hey, babe, what's going on? You can't do that. There's a protocol. And we honor those protocols. But the king of the universe is here. And we come with coffee and donuts. And we don't give him our very best. And we want to know when we're in trouble why he's hiding his face from us. There is a sense in which God hides his face from us because it's our fault. Now, the rest of the psalm speaks of it being God's fault. He's going to tell you that that God has a purpose in hiding his face. But there's a sense in which you and I need to understand what we're about here. I don't approach this pulpit lightly. I give it my very best to prepare for you. I've got 17 verses of scripture to cover. And I've covered one this morning. And I'm prepared for all 17 because I'm gonna give you the whole shotgun. 
because I want to be prepared. I'm gonna stand before God one day and he's gonna say, you know, these people in the front row, they came and they sat in front of you for an hour and listened to you. You took one hour of their time. Did you tell them anything that's going to mean anything in their lives? We wanna feel good when we walk out. I want you to feel good when you walk out, but I want you to feel good for another reason. I want you to feel good because you've been with God. I don't want you to feel good because I've told you a lie. Let me close with this. Over the years, I have been somewhat critical. Not somewhat, I've been critical of the theology of the extremists that we see on television, promising you health, wealth, and prosperity if you simply have enough faith. And people flock to their crusades, they flock to their churches, they give thousands and thousands of dollars, they buy their books, they will go from one place to another and fill their churches to the brim just to hear about how if they have a certain mantra, a certain expression, a certain prayer, that God is going to have to bless their socks off because they've reached the magical formula. And if he doesn't heal you, it's because you don't have enough faith. And I've blasted that theology over the years and will continue to do so because I believe it is a dangerous, dangerous theology, but there's a new one out there. We now listen to men who have national and international audiences, 20, 30, 40,000 people sitting in their churches, in their church. 20,000 seat facility filled three times on a Sunday morning. Now you could stand back and you can look at that and say, man, they're doing something right. I watched this person on TV the other day and I turned it off and somberly I said to Sharon, that man is dangerous. That is the most dangerous theology cooking today. You know what that theology is? You are basically a good person. And all you need to do is feel good about yourself. Just feel good about who you are. Have your self-image boosted by feeling good about yourself. And that is where salvation lies. And the people who want to feel good flock to this gospel, this pseudo-gospel. And they walk out of the church without hearing, as Paul Harvey calls it, the rest of the story. They never hear about the depravity of humans. They never hear about the fact that we are like the leopard and our spots, as Ezekiel calls it, can never be changed. That our nature is corrupt that we are totally depraved and morally bankrupt. And that is why Christ came, to die for my S-I-N, which is never mentioned in the context of self-image preaching. We never talk about hell, a hell to be shunned or a heaven to be gained. Well, a heaven to be gained maybe, but not a hell to be shunned. And we never talk about the fact that we must repent of our sins and mourn and weep and wail over the fact that we have offended God, but that he in love sent his son to die on the cross, to bear the equivalent of an eternity in hell on the cross for me. We're too busy, God, enculturating the masses. We want them to feel good, so we won't call abortion murder. 
We won't call homosexuality what it is. By the way, do you know that in the writings of all the church fathers, that these are the guys who came right after the apostles, all the church fathers for about 300 years wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books and materials. In not one of them will you find the word homosexual used. You know what they call homosexuality in those writings? That unspeakable abomination against God. They didn't even want to speak about it. Now, see, I can't talk about stuff like that because it's going to be offensive. And we want to make sure that everybody feels good about themselves. You'll never hear me say, a homosexual is born a homosexual. And you'll never hear me say that God cannot deliver that homosexual from his depraved sin in the same way that he delivered me from mine. And if I change that message, shoot me. Shoot me. Why? Because we want to enculturate. We want to make sure that everybody feels good. I would rather lose half of the church to the true gospel than to fill the church with a false one. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.